0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muckrake podcast, the weekender edition for our patrons. Thank you for your support. You are the absolute best. I'm Jared Yates Sexton. I'm here with Nick Houselman. Uh We've got a treat for the people, do we not, Nick? Oh, yeah.
1: Great conversation. Uh, well, it's a great conversation, but it also, if you think about it a little hard, then you, it gets to a place where it doesn't feel so great.
0: It's, it's a lot. Uh, we have Kate Aronoff, who is the author of uh, an absolute stunningly good book overheated how capitalism broke the planet and how we fight back Uh, for my money it is the best book on uh climate change and the climate catastrophe uh an absolute expert on this topic and uh i just want to say for anybody who's listening to the preview of this You're going to want to hear this episode. I think this is the the definitive person on understanding climate change, how things can actually get better, what we're actually dealing with. I I think this is an important conversation.
1: Sure. Well, uh, let's make sure we tell them where to go.
0: Yeah. Go over to patreon.com slash podcast. Again, your support is what keeps this show ad free and editorially independent. We appreciate your help. All the patrons who are supporting us, you have been coming up huge lately and we're just so grateful. And so now we're going to go over, we're going to hang out with Kate Aronoff and we'll be back in just a minute. Hey, everybody, we have an incredibly special guest today. Uh, I've I've been waiting to have this conversation for a while, and we're really, really lucky to have Kate Aronoff, who covers climate for the New Republic and is the author of a really incredible book uh, titled Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Fight Back, and very recently was named a reporting fellow for the Climate Social Science Network. Uh, Congratulations on that, Kate, and thanks for being on here.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, excited to be here.
0: Uh, so, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while about this. Uh, I think Overheated is uh, one of the best books out there about, I think, undoubtedly the most important issue that we are facing. Uh, I think it takes a very large frightening topic. It explains it. It talks about where this thing came from. And I, I, I think in terms of people who are covering uh, the the developing climate crisis, I think that you have been an excellent source of this, if not one of the, the, the absolute best sources. And I wanted to ask, uh, first and foremost, how did you get into this, what is it about about the climate that necessarily like piqued your interest? How is it you decided to tackle one of the biggest, most complicated, dangerous things that humanity has ever faced?
2: Sure. Well, thank you so much <laughs> for all the, all the nice words. I'm tempted to just end the interview there. You
0: should. That should be it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> all those nice things. Um, how did I get into this? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question because I think I, I I come at this from a slightly different angle than I think people. Tend to you know come to the climate issue, um, in that you know I don't I don't have any sort of special relationship to nature did not sort of grow up hiking or you know never have felt like a, a you know a, a real sort of commune with that <laughs> that side of things. But uh, I sort of came into climate stuff my freshman year of college and sort of came to campus really wanting to do some kind of activism, wanting to, you know, get involved in, you know, something left-leaning in, in, in some capacity like a lot of people do, you know, when they're when they're 18. And my um, preference really was, you know, to work on sort of labor issues, to work a little bit with um, a group called SLAT, Student Labor Action Project. Um and that was really where I thought, you know, I would spend a lot of my time in college and was not, you know, particularly interested in climate issues, in part because that was about twenty ten and a lot of what the focus was of campus climate activism, and to some extent the environmental movement more generally was about composting and recycling and kind of riding your bike more. And that was, you know, just not very Exciting to me, you know, I, I had a sort of working knowledge of the climate crisis and um, just thought those things seemed a little out of touch with what uh, what, what seemed to be happening. But um, I had the opportunity in my freshman year to go visit with folks who were resisting mountaintop removal coal mining in West Virginia and going there sort of hearing from people from the area you know, who were involved in these fights. Really, just sort of brought into focus how connected questions of political economy were, uh, questions of labor were with climate and the things that were driving driving this crisis, right? I mean, in, in West Virginia, you have these epic sort of labor struggles uh, through the early 20th century um, to you know make working conditions uh, better in coal mines, right, and to fight for you know things like uh, you know an end to um, and to just horrific, horrific working conditions, um, and to you know give give working people kind of a shot. And so you you know have this whole sort of political economy structured around around this one industry, and it just really um, shapes things in this fundamental way. And you see the threads of that through today, right? Companies just sort of walking away because they don't value uh, don't value the lives or the land or you know people who have really built a tremendous amount of wealth, both for the owners of those companies, for this country. Um, and so I think that that trip really you know solidified um, and, and brought together a lot of threads I was I was interested in and then worked on the fossil fuel divestment movement, um, getting my college and you know, trying to encourage other people to start campaigns to get their college uh, colleges to take their uh, university endowments and divest from fossil fuels in their portfolios. Um, worked on that for you know for four years and then um, realized I was better at writing than I wasn't organizing and so I decided to become a reporter uh, instead
1: You know I was thinking um, I think the the challenge here is to convince people that alternative energy sources could be a money maker and I'm wondering why that seems so hard to get enough people in this country to believe
2: Yeah it's a good question i mean and i think this this math has changed a little bit in in the last couple of years i mean it's pretty recent right that we see the you know the rise of sort of esg these green asset classes um that you know pretty big segments of capital are interested in uh and, and you know the last i would say three four years in a way that was not true right when i um you know first started first started looking at this stuff and so now you know we're re- starting to reach the point where um, solar and wind really are kind of cost competitive with uh, with oil and gas and in many parts of the country you see utilities for instance right are, are voluntarily right not of the goodness of their hearts but um, are starting to uh, in some cases skip past right what was known as the bridge natural gas uh, and start you know, using much more renewables as part of their sort of plans for the future um, just based on a financial calculation about about what that means but the um problem right is that trend is starting to happen too slowly not not you know fast enough as it would need to be to keep warming below two degrees uh celsius or 1.5 certainly um but you see this real resistance sort of cropping up from entrenched interest right in the oil and gas industry uh in the coal industry um and so the the sort of market logic which you know i i Sort of go to task with in the book, but you know, I I do think market forces are important, right? I think they're they're a powerful driver of uh, of, of of you know shifts, certainly in a capitalist society. Um, but what we find over and over again in looking at climate is that's not enough, right? Is that you know there are these really sort of um, thorny political fights uh, that need to be won in order to you know make this massive massive transition happen.
0: Yeah, and and one of the things that I, I really appreciate in your work, and and I, you know, it, it feels like when people are covering climate or discussing it, they almost treat it like this is a thing that just happened. Like, it's just a natural side effect of, you know, we're humans. That's what we do. We change the climate. You know, that's how it happens, even though this is obviously a side effect of the Industrial Revolution, post-Industrial Revolution. And um, really, there's no way to talk about this honestly and maturely without talking about capitalism about that we are in an environment, an economic system that constantly has to grow. It has to absorb any and all resources uh, in, in pursuit of constant growth. Can you talk a little bit about how these two things are inextricable? How, like, n- not only do we have to talk about market forces, which is what a lot of people were, like, talking about, oh, we'll give tax cuts or we'll invest in this, but it's actually a natural, or unnatural, I suppose, uh, side effect of this giant capitalistic system.
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, capitalism, I think, has this really sort of inborn logic, logic of expansion, right? And so you can look at different, iterations of how capitalist economies have operated, right? I mean, a big part of the story, especially in the last uh, last decade or so, has been about neoliberalism, right? The sort of set of rules by which um, certain capitalist economies can operate. Um, but if you look more broadly at how just capitalism functions in general, it has a sort of endless thirst, right? To, to go and find new frontiers to extract value from. Um, and that is really core to understanding what's gotten us to this point, right, this sort of endless thirst, which requires sort of endless material usage, endless fossil fuels, and in our case, and just it's it's a really sort of incomplete to look at a climate crisis and try to think about it as removed in any way, right, from this economic system, which has really shaped this economic system, this belief system, political ordering that has really shaped our world in a really fundamental Way, which is not to say that other sort of belief systems don't shape the world, right? Don't have an impact on the environment, but sort of the trajectory that we've been on for the last, you know, many centuries, uh, and in particular since this great acceleration, right? Since about mid-century, um, is really a product of capitalism, right? Is is a product of this sort of endless drive for uh, for accumulation.
1: You know, I'm in California, and we're just going off of this uh, this failed recall which reminds me of Gray Davis being recalled in the early 2000s. I don't don't know. It might be like before your time and what you're studying. But, um, you know, there's a direct connection between him getting recalled and the Enron scandal in Texas. And I'm good. You're nodding your head. So uh, I'm I'm wondering if, um, you know, there was price spiking. There uh, there was uh, a lack of energy that was manipulated by Enron to, you know, make more money for them. Have, have we seen more instances of those things? Because I think I find it funny or amazing that here's you know energy and politics completely inter- intertwined to the point where we lost our governor over this. Basically, so I'm wondering: do we are we we're still seeing this right? And, and are we seeing any hope that somehow we can regulate that or stop that from happening?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought up Enron. I actually thought at some point of including a lot more on Enron in, in the book and my uh, chapter on utilities was initially like double the length that it was and it's already it's it's as is i think is the longest chapter in the book um but the other story is so interesting right because you know it's it's sort of told is this story of just kind of crony capitalism right that you know this really dastardly set of actors had uh, a relationship with the bush administration and manipulated prices to crash you know california's energy market and then by some bizarre series of events, you know, Gray Davis gets recalled and, and you know, a Republican elected. Um, but it's more it's more common than not, right? In, in terms of, you know, how um, particularly energy markets are manipulated. And there's a guy, um, there's a, an academic named uh, Gavin Banky who's written a great book about um, about the Edmund Scandal sort of telling this story, right? That it can't be understood neatly as a sort of, you know, evil villain Uh, evil villain narrative when sort of Enron's whole uh, approach was really making markets out of what should be basic rights, right? It's sort of introducing a profit logic into the provision of a very essential service. Uh, And Enron was very innovative in in finding new ways to do that and finding new sort of opportunities for profits, particularly in natural gas, but also in wind, right? I think people forget about the, the sort of huge amount of, of business and Ron had in, in wind um, and, you know, how interested they were in that space. Uh, and, you know, I have this chapter in the book that looks at um, sort of, you know, vaporware tech companies uh, and and connecting that to the, to the fracking story. But I think, you know, the um, kind of, Moral of that is just that there is always a sort of tendency to scheme, to grift, to um, you know make a make a, a profit off of things that you know should not should not be profitable, right? And in terms of you know something like um, something like energy in the case of Enron, but that is just how um, you know that is the kind of place you end up when you decide, right? When and this was a set of choices that were made over the last century, uh, when you decide that. Very basic services should be subject to profit making, uh, and you know Enron is, is a sort of natural endpoint of that, as, as sort of you know comical as some of its its villains are.
0: Yeah, it's weird when you start looking for solutions in a market based way; it sort of uh, goes ahead and breeds corruption. It's kind of odd how those types of things happen. Um, I, I on that note, I, I would be interested to hear from you as someone who covers this, focuses on it. Um, You know, I think a lot of people climate change and climate catastrophe particularly is such a massive thing uh, that it's almost hard to grasp. It's almost hard for for a human to imagine a future. It's weird. I was doing the research on the industrial revolution. And basically, even then the climate was changing, like within 50 years. And immediately everyone's like, ah, don't worry, God will take care of it. You know, <laughs> there, there's some sort of a divine thing that will take care of it. Now it feels like we've almost reckoned ourselves into believing that if we just get back into the Paris Accord that'll fix things. Or um, I keep seeing these ads that drive me insane. It's like the Ikea stuff where it's like, oh, if you just get a uh, a reusable product, all of a sudden we're going to stave off the apocalypse. But I think one of the larger things I would love to hear what you think about this is for us to avoid catastrophe, for us to actually solve this, it would take a societal revolution on a scale that I don't think most people understand or really are able to reckon with, which almost keeps us from being able to do it. Is it hard to think about this, research it, talk about it while meanwhile understanding that there is some sort of an epoch that needs to occur for this to change?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. So in some sense, I'm a bit desensitized (laughs) to to it, I think. But, you know, that's a very human I think longing, right? to for there be there to be some quick solution, for there to be something that you know can solve the problem all at once. And there's this sort of um, very individualistic consumer version of that, right? If you turn your lights off, if you buy this reusable product, if you drive an electric car, um then you can do that. Uh, then then you know that will create the change that's needed um, for decarbonization. But, you know, there's versions of this that, that I uh, have probably fallen prey to myself. It's that, you know, we'll have some big policy change, right? Um, that will uh, that will really make the difference or this one quick trick. Uh, or, you know, in my, like, headier kind of uh, young anarchist days, like the revolution, right? It's going to be the thing that saves us from the climate crisis. But it's just harder than that, right? It is really a sort of societal shift in how, how we get our energy and sort of the direction that electrons are going and uh, how we get around and the types of places we live, right? And this is, you know, not necessarily a change for the worse, right? It doesn't mean sort of, doesn't have to mean this kind of collective belt tightening or that, you know, the government is going to ration out how many hamburgers you can eat, um but can mean investing in things like public housing right that has good insulation that is very energy efficient you know that is also more fun to live in right than a lot of the housing that people have to live in today which is really drafty and people you know spend a tremendous amount of their income on their energy bills um so i think a lot of you know the exciting work that i've seen in the last couple of years is sort of putting that kind of positive vision into into the mm-hmm. conversation, right? So this doesn't have to mean, you know, making your life worse uh, in order to to take on this this crisis. And I think that's, you know, potentially for thinking about how to do something about this, that's a maybe a more promising avenue uh, than yelling about how bad it is, right? Which, which I think can be, for me at it's least, kind of personally exhausting. exhausting.
0: But isn't that also, I mean, what you were saying, I think, about the personal sort of sacrifice part of it, it feels like the responsibility for climate change has been pushed off on the individual to consider through consumer choices as opposed to, I mean, nation states. Like we're literally talking about something that only the United States and China and all the major contributors to carbon can possibly even begin to deal with. And so as a result, it's it's almost as if I, I think the hamburger thing is one of the dumbest things that has been going, right? Like, obviously, we can do our parts, but that's not going to stave off apocalyptic scenarios and, and it, it, it pushes it on to people and it makes people think that their lives are going to get worse. But isn't the answer that your lives will get better if somehow or another we manage to figure this out because it'll it'll figure inequality, it'll figure production, it'll mess with all of this, right?
2: Yeah, I, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the only thing on offer for the 21st century is very radical change, right? So we don't do anything about the climate crisis and – we see just a fundamentally unstable climate that is, you know, magnifying the types of disasters we've seen this year, wildfires, hurricanes, floods, all of this just really uh, expanded into realms that we can't really, you know, know the full length of, right? We can't really know um, all of what that will look like because we are basing our projections on the climate that we've known. and. All the science tells us that the climate that we're going into is one that is fundamentally pretty un- unpredictable, right? And and that is only more so true the more the Earth warms, right? And so that's the sort of radical path that we're you know kind of going down right now. And there's the other kind of radical path, right, of changing our economic system, of changing sort of all these things that we were just we were just talking about. And the real tragedy of climate politics, right, is that at the time when it emerges into the popular consciousness and you know about the late 80s um there's been this real sort of uh decades long organizing project that is very successful you know decades-long organizing project by business conservatives by companies that were fighting back against the new deal order to really refocus the realm of politics right to de-emphasize um, that the state can do really big positive things and have a really big positive impact and people's lives, and focus that down to focus the unit of society down to the individual. Right? Margaret Thatcher has her famous quote about there is no such thing as society; there are only individuals and families. Uh, and Reagan, you know, takes that up in the United States, of course. Right? And to really just eviscerate this idea um, that the state can or even should, right, do things for people or do things to make uh, our world a better a better place and that that you know job is best left if not to individuals then of course to private companies uh, to, to make those changes. And so yeah, I mean the, the only sort of actors which, which can deliver uh, climate you know climate policy that's anywhere near the scale of the problem are nation states right or is government policy but that you know has really taken a long time to claw back that basic logic and get that back into
1: the um, policy conversation.